Lord, uh, you are uh, the God of uh, the whole world. Uh, all nations are, are yours. They belong to you. And so we commit ourselves to you, and we thank you, Lord, that your Son, uh, your servant, the Messiah, is not only a light to your people Israel, but is a light for all of your people uh, everywhere around the world. Uh, we thank you that you are gracious and patient. Uh, despite our sin, uh, you continue to work with us. You continue to exercise compassion towards us. And we would ask, Lord, that uh, this morning you would meet our needs and feed us by your word. Uh, Lord, we think about those uh, who are sick and uh, even dying. We pray that your hand will be upon them. Uh, just give them the strength and the resources and the grace that they need. Lord, for those who love them, uh, for family and for friends, we pray that you'll give uh, a full measure of comfort and strength. Lord, help us to just uh, truly trust in you, to receive each day uh, as a gift, uh, to receive things freely from your hand uh, in love and in grace. Help us to make the most of our time here in this world. Uh, help us to serve you well. And also prepare us for the time when you bring us to, into your presence, uh, when we see you face to face, when we finally uh, do not need to trust and walk by faith, but we can actually at that time walk by sight and uh, walk by a sort of empirical experience in your very presence. We pray that by your Spirit you will do what we cannot do, that you will open your word. We know that uh, I am incapable of teaching it, and we are incapable of receiving it apart from your blessing and apart from your spirit. So we look to you to be our teacher this morning, and we ask that you will do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning uh, we're going to continue on in our uh, series through Isaiah. So uh, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, Isaiah 42. <clears throat> You at least uh, recognize the first four verses. Uh, these are things that, of course, Jesus uh, reads and applies to himself uh, in the Gospels. So that also gives you a framework for uh, interpretive understanding. This is going to be applying to Jesus. Isaiah chapter 42, uh, we'll read the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. 
I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim His praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, He will stir up His zeal. With a shout, He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over His enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Hear you, deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of His righteousness to make His law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Well, this uh, section in Isaiah introduces the servant of the Lord. And uh, the servant of the Lord uh, is a figure who is very prominent in the book, uh, extraordinarily important in various contexts, and also uh, vitally important theologically. Uh, There are also debates uh, in terms of interpretation. How do we best understand uh, this figure? Uh, Because sometimes it seems like the data is a little bit mixed. So in verse 18, for example... You have the servant who's deaf and blind. Verse 19, who is blind like my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? But in chapter 42, verse 1, it's 
My servant's the one I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I put my spirit in him. He brings justice to the nations. He doesn't destroy the bruised reed. These are words that Jesus applies to himself. And so as you begin to work through the data, the text sort of oscillates or it bounces back and forth in different times between now and chapter 53. It bounces back and forth different times between uh, this ideal servant who serves the Lord perfectly and is a complete blessing to the world and this servant who's, who's blind and deaf and failing and sinful and wicked. The culminating point is Isaiah 52, verse 13, through 53, verse 12. And that's, of course, the section in Isaiah that everyone is most familiar with, particularly outside of Christmas time. Uh, Isaiah 53 is about you know, the, 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 the one who's like a lamb before the shearers being silent. It's the Lord's will to bruise him and crush him for our iniquities, etc., etc., so what you're going to get is you're going to get this climactic section where the servant provides what I will argue at that time is a substitutionary atonement for the people of God. So Israel, so, sorry, so the servant is Israel, the nation at times, but also a perfect Israel who ministers to Israel, the nation, and also the Gentile world. So depending on the lens or depending on the perspective, the servant is either ideal Israel, that is the Son of God, that is Messiah, or it's actual Israel, that is the Son of God, but rebellious and wicked. Sometimes, you remember as well, that in Israel, uh, the king was the head of the nation and in a special way represented God to the nation and the nation to God. So you, sometimes you could also argue that the servant of the Lord is being, is being looked at as the ideal king, and in what he does, he embodies and represents the nation. That's the Messiah. At other times, it's the body. It's the nation itself. So as we work through this, we'll see this. It becomes reasonably clear. Uh, here the Lord is referring to his servant, that is, the, the ideal Israel, the fulfillment of Israel who will be the Messiah. Here, Isaiah, here the Lord is referring to Israel itself in practice, uh, in, in time, space, history, who is rebellious and wicked. This becomes the, the most clear section, though, are, is when the servant who is Israel has a ministry to Israel. And so, in, that, in those sections, it's reasonably obvious uh, that uh, Israel is serving, in that sense, as a metaphor idolized to the nation itself. We'll see this as we go. First thing to note, verse 40, or chapter 42, verse 1. Here's my servant whom I uphold. He's strengthened by God, my chosen one in whom I delight. And so this servant, whoever he is right now, I mean, you're just being introduced to him. You're not supposed to have a whole theology of who he is at this time. The first thing you're being told about him is that God loves him. God upholds him. God has chosen him. And God delights in him. Uh, as it's sometimes been noted, you, know, you can choose someone for a job because they're good at a job, but you might not really like the person. Here, not only does God choose the servant for the job, but he delights in him. Uh, he, he loves him. I choose you, and I delight in you. So he's elected, he's selected for relationship and task. And it's a personal relationship where God actually loves him. 
So the servant is loved. That's the first thing you want to know. Chosen, delighted in, loved, and cherished. But then also, in order to be able to discharge this duty, whatever it's going to be, he's filled by the Spirit. So the servant is chosen, delighted in, and the Spirit is put on him. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, what you find is, well, New Testament in general, everyone is baptized by the Spirit. Every Christian is baptized by the Spirit. However, different Christians are more or less filled by the Spirit at different times. So in the book of Acts, whenever we're told someone is filled by the Spirit, they're filled by the Spirit for the purpose of witness and proclamation. So someone is filled by the Spirit, then they get up and they testify to the name of, in the name of Jesus. They proclaim the gospel. Someone is filled by the Spirit, they get up and they witness boldly in the, in, in the face of persecution for Jesus. So baptism in the Spirit takes place once for all at conversion. Being filled by the Spirit is being empowered by the Spirit. That takes place at different times in an ongoing way, but not just so you can sit around and feel holy. You're filled by the Spirit for purpose, for task, for discharge of duty tied to witnessing for Jesus. That's why people are filled by the Spirit. Here, the servant is, has the Spirit put on him to bring justice to the nations. And what we've seen in Isaiah again and again and again and again is that God is absolutely uh, entirely concerned with a worldwide program for justice. God wants righteousness and justice to be found in every nation on earth. And so this servant here is a servant who is bringing justice, and we'd almost want to, we'd want to say social justice at one level, carefully defined biblically. But more than that, not merely just sort of social justice the way people think of it, of it today, but actually comprehensively putting everything right, making things just, making things righteous around the nations. But what is a servant going to be like? He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Now, this is amazing. What you're basically being told here in terms of 21st century equivalent is the servant of the Lord will not have a Twitter account. He is not going to be boasting and bragging and sending out messages about how great he is and all the things he's accomplished and how everyone who opposes him is an idiot. He's not going to be doing anything like that at all. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's not raising his voice in the streets. He's, he's not telling everyone, hey, focus on me, you know, like my updates or whatever it is that people do today. No, he, he just goes about his business quietly. Uh, he has a, a ministry to the entire world, uh, filled by the Spirit, chosen by God, delighted in by God, uh, someone who, as, we, as we'll see in the fulfillment as the Messiah, the centerpiece of all of God's program for history, and he is not drawing undue attention to himself. He's not sort of marshalling his own parade. He's gentle. He's humble. Now, when he comes in terms of the Messiah, yes, he will be bold. Uh, Jesus will not be reticent to speak the truth. Uh, Jesus will, uh, very, will be uh, very bold in driving people out of the temple uh, in order to bring justice there. So he's not weak. 
Oh, but, but he's also someone who, who's compassionate and, and spiritually quiet. Someone who isn't arrogant. Someone who is drawing attention through themselves to God. That's, that's his goal. He's not crying out. And he's gentle with those who are suffering. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. These are the people who are marginalized. Uh, these are the people who are weak. You know, that, that bruised reed, you know, that it could just be snapped so easily. Um, so one of the things that I did uh, to, to combat uh, jet lag, I got in Friday night around uh, 10 o'clock. Um, so yesterday was a bit of a write-off. Uh, and today just bounced back perfectly. Uh, so this morning, uh, just after 9.30 or so, uh, when, when I was going to be in Sunday school, but I, I, I skipped. It was a terrible thing to do. Uh, with, with Ainsley and Shane teaching, I was just I was so intimidated. I just didn't want to know how good it was, so I would never have the confidence to teach again. So I decided to go for a walk. It's getting hot out there. Uh, so I went for a walk, and, and, and just down here where we have uh, that fenced-in yard, it's a tree, and uh, two little twig-like branches dangling, broken. And so I come along, and, and I see that, and just sort of just twist them and take them down because they're they're broken. I mean, they're, they're dead, right? What you're being told here is that as long as there's any hope of life at all, the servant's not going to twist the branches off it. Now, John 15 will use a different metaphor of pruning, and it's good to prune trees and vegetation. Sometimes you have to cut something down. But here what you're being told is, as long as there's even, even if it's just a little tiny bit of wick left, he's not going to snuff it out. Tiniest trace of life, and he's going to nourish it. He's going to nurture it. He's going to bind it up. He's not going to snap it. Bruised, he'll heal. He's a healer. Uh, He's not coming as a destroyer. He's coming quietly to heal. And he's not going to falter until he establishes justice on the earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. Now, we've mentioned this. Some older translations will say coastlands or the coast. Newer translations will often say islands. More paraphrastic versions will say to the ends of the earth or something like that. In Isaiah, whenever you get coasts, islands, it's referring to the Antipodes. It's referring to the the poles. It's referring to the farthest place you can imagine. And so when you're told the islands will put their hope in his teaching, what you're being told is eventually what this person says is going to be known everywhere on earth. And that's where people are going to find their hope. Justice is going to go everywhere on earth with the teachings of this person, with the teachings of the servant. And that's precisely what happens in, in history, isn't it? I mean, 2,700 years after Isaiah, give or take, justice is advancing precisely in the places that follow the teaching of the servant of the Lord. All over the world, People are putting their hope 
in the teaching of the servant of the Lord. This is what the Creator God says. This is what God the Lord says, rather. The Creator of heavens who stretches them out. So verses 5 and following, let me remind you, listen, the Lord is the one who's created everything. And because the Lord has created everything, He owns everything. He owns the entire world. He owns all peoples. He's made them in His image. And in this beautiful section, verse 6, I, the Lord, speaking to the servant, I have called you. I have called my servant in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. And so God, we're told in the beginning, the Lord upholds the servant. Now, it's like the, the, the Lord reaches out and grasps the hand of the servant to lead him and to guide him and to help him. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Now, if, if we had more time um, and we were sort of doing uh, sort of more biblical theology, one of the things that would be well worth doing here is actually sort of sorting out how does this expression, I will make you to be a covenant, fit with the covenant framework in which God sort of designs His program for human history. You think of, you can make a good argument, there's a creation covenant with Adam, we can, we can bypass that because that's controversial. But you look at the, the covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with David, New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, Luke's Gospel tells us that Christ's blood is the blood of the New Covenant, picked up in Hebrews chapter 8, fulfilled in the church. Here it's the servant who is the covenant. I will make you to be a covenant. Well, how can a person be a covenant? I mean, we understand in terms of promises, we understand in terms of culture, we understand even in terms of almost contract, but how can a person be a covenant? Well, this servant is so important in the, grand, in the unfolding of God's program of redemptive history. He's so important that every single blessing that anyone could ever have is embodied in him and mediated through him from God. And so whatever blessing there is, whatever covenantal promises there are, whatever God has for His people in terms of covenant blessing comes only through this person. So in that sense, He is so integral to the covenant that there is no covenant apart from Him. All of those blessings of God, do you realize that not not a single one not, not a single one of those covenant blessings would be ours if it wasn't for the Messiah through whom they come. Not one. All the staggering promises of God, not one would be ours if they didn't come through the servant of the Lord. You are the covenant. Without Him, there is no covenant. Without Him, there is no blessing. Without Him, there is no forgiveness. Without Him, there is no redemption. He is everything the covenant is about. All of God's promises stand on Him. Without Him, there's nothing. You will be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. That is, not only will you be a blessing to my people Israel, 
You will be a blessing to all of the world. Isaiah has one of my favorite verses about this, actually. We'll get there, and I'll tell you when we get there. But it's the same sort of idea. Oh, the Messiah isn't just for Israel. The Messiah is for everyone. To open the eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. To release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That's what he does. That's his job. That's the covenant. Those are the covenant blessings. Sight to the blind. Freedom for those who are in prison. Release from those who are in dungeons and darkness. It's, it's a metaphor, of course. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. See, the former things have taken place. New things I declare. You know, God, God's always at work to do something new. I'm not sure if you ever noticed that. But in the Bible, the Bible, it's interesting this way. God is always calling people to remember the past and to forget the past. Have <laughs> you ever noticed that? Uh, he's so often saying, hey, don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget what you've been through. Don't forget what I've led you through. And then God's saying, hey, forget all that stuff. I'm doing new things. Don't you notice what I'm doing now? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to think about those things or am I not supposed to think about those things? It's all contextual. You know, there's a time to, to take stock. There's a time to remember. These are the milestones. Here are some of the events. Here are some of the things God has brought me through. Here's when God was faithful. God says, yeah, you will remember that. Don't, don't forget what I've done for you. He says, oh, no, 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 but, but now you're, you're, you're dwelling in the past too much. Don't miss what I'm doing now. I'm doing new things. I'm raising up a servant to do something new. When you've reached a time of fulfillment, you don't want to spend all of your time in the past in the shadows. Let, let, let God do something new in your life. It'll be organically connected to things you've been through, but you're not going through those things now. So what does God want for you today? Well, today, or in Isaiah's day in this text, because God is doing new things, you're supposed to, verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. So whenever you get this new song language in Scripture, it's always in response to something new God is doing. In other words, as God's at work in your life, there's a recognition that there were ways you praised him which were perfectly fine at the time for things you were going through. But as God does something new in your life, new expressions of praise are, are, are fitting. As God does something new, the, the old framework in which you praised him doesn't quite fit. There's something uniquely different. And so, as God does new things in our lives, we are to praise Him in new ways. Now, this does not slavishly mean that, you know, you always need to write a new song. Uh, sometimes the, the old words are perfectly fine, but it, it's, it's investing them with new significance and meaning, right? So, what we want to be doing is we want to be, even if it's sort of, even if it's quoting the same verses, it's feeling them and understanding them differently. It, it's, it's seeing new nuances. It's seeing new facets in them. It's seeing new things in them. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we can understand what this is like. You know, if, if you read books, then you reread books. It's amazing, depending on context, how you can get totally new things out of books you've read before. 
or you, you see sights you've seen before. You go places you've been before. But other things you've learned and other things you've experienced allow you to appreciate those books, those, those songs, those, those locations. Those new things allow you to, to appreciate them in, in new depth to the point where it's almost it's a brand new experience. And that's the way it's supposed to be spiritually for us. So that, so that you know, you, know you, you, you say it's, it's great to be saved. Oh, grace, grace is an amazing thing. We sing amazing grace, amazing grace. But, but grace had, had better be experientially far more amazing to you after reflection on it and after living through it and after experiencing God's grace in your life for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Grace really better be more amazing then than it was when you started out. Same phrase, same hymn, different experience. To talk about the faithfulness of God, it's one thing you've been walking with Him for six months, and hopefully you appreciate His faithfulness. But after 50 years, after 60 years, that phrase, faithfulness of God, it better mean something a lot more than it meant 50 years before, see? So we're, do, we're responding to God, new ways of thinking, new ways of feeling, new, new ways of expression, or the old expressions, but just meant more significantly. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the ends of the earth. Why? I mean, what has He done? Verse 11, sing for joy, shout from the mountaintops, give glory to the Lord, proclaim His praise. Why? The Lord is marching out like a champion. He's going to defeat His enemies. He's going to take people, verse 16, uh, who can't see, and He's going to guide them through unfamiliar paths. I mean, you imagine being blind, and, and then being, being dropped somewhere where you've never been before. How are you going to make your way? Well, you're not. Unless God guides you. Unless God escorts you. I will turn darkness into light. I'll make the rough places plain. Now, those who trust in idols, there's no hope for them because their idols are blind. Their idols can't help them at all. So if you're going to trust in idols, then you're not going to get anywhere. But if you're going to trust in God, He's going to turn the darkness into light. He is going to give you eyes to see, and He's going to be your personal guide. I was able, uh, when was this? My goodness. Two weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, I, I wasn't able to, to go to church uh, for the, when I was over there uh, in terms of just security. So two weeks ago on uh, Sunday, I took a tour, uh, went out to uh, the Great Wall. It's pretty great. Uh, you should go. Uh, it's one, that is one of those places where no amount of hearing about it, no amount of pictures will ever do it justice. It's, you, you just have to be there to have any sort of idea of the scope of what this thing was. Uh, and, and, you know, built just about 2,000 years ago, uh, substantial renovation 1,500 years ago, all of this done by hand, you know, people uh, 
presumably carrying stones on their backs up this mountain range to build this wall that's 5,000 kilometers long. You know, I only had a day, so I only walked half of it. Um, but you, know, you, you go out there, and, and um, I never could have got there without a guide, right? I don't, don't speak the language where I am. I have no idea how to get anywhere. Uh, I, you know, the traffic's terrible. I would never get there. We'd never get there without a guide. Well, that's just what you're being told here. You're, you're, you're never going to get anywhere without a guide. You're, you're dependent. You need God. It's okay. God knows the language. God knows where you're going. God knows how to get there. You know, he, he, he doesn't even need those apps that tell you, you know, where the traffic problems are. He knows. He'll get you where you need to go. Don't worry about the route. Don't, don't worry about the, the rough places. He'll smooth them out. He can do that. He's God. So trust Him. Let Him lead you. And verses 18 through 25 gives you another perspective of the servant. This is where you oscillate. So, so you have sort of the ideal servant in this up until now. Now you have the way the servant actually is, Israel. Hear you, deaf, look you blind, and see who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Well, that's Israel. Blind like the servant of the Lord. Well, why is Israel so blind? They're blind and deaf because, as verse 20 says, you have seen many things, but you do not pay attention, or but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. And this is precisely the problem that Jesus will confront with the Pharisees and religious leaders in the Gospels again and again and again and again. You don't see because you don't want to see. You don't hear because you don't want to listen. There are none so blind as those who will not see. And here is where you're supposed to learn a lesson from the past. God says, remember, you know, you've seen many things. Look at all the things I've done for you. Think of all the places I've taken you. And if you just review the history of Israel up until this point, think about about all that God had done. I've done many things. But you pay no attention. And this is, of course, not merely a problem for the nation of Israel at this time in history. This is, this is a problem for all of us as human beings that we struggle with, isn't it? God does incredible things and we just don't pay any attention. Uh, or, like Israel, when God brings them out of Egypt, a fair display of power, right? There's Passover, takes them you know, through, miraculously through the river, out in the desert, a couple days later, everyone's complaining. Let's go back to Egypt. There we had melons. That's literally what they say. We had garlic and melons. Let's go back there. Now, on one hand, it is easy to criticize when you're not wandering around a desert, right? Uh, so, so we might want to be... We, we grumble. <laughs> we grumble pretty quick you know, without conditions being that bad. You know, so, so they just want to go back. And you want to say, 
Don't you remember what just happened three days ago, though? Like, like don't you remember that? Don't, don't you recall? I mean, think about what God has done for you. You've seen many things, but you pay no attention. But how often is that us, though, really? How often are we blind to the incredible blessings of God in our life because we just focus on the negative? We focus on what we don't have. Sometimes focusing on what we, what we don't have is the, is the destruction of enjoyment of what we do have. I've done many things for you, God says. I've done many things for you. But you don't pay attention. You're, you're not thinking about what I have done. It pleased the Lord for the sake of His righteousness to make His law great and glorious. And this is actually something which is really important. Because, because there's a sense in which I just made that mistake just now. The mistake is to think, look at the big showy displays of God's power like Exodus crossing. How can we not pay attention to things like that? But what's more impressive actually than Passover and plagues and crossing the Red Sea, what's more impressive than that is the law of God. That's what they're not paying attention to. God's saying, I have made my law great and glorious. I've given you my word. I've given you the covenant law. It displays my righteousness. This is how you can know who I am. This is how the nations will know who I am. I mean, Israel's job, you'll remember, was to be given the law so they would obey the law so that all the nations around them would say, oh my goodness, you have a pretty fantastic law. How did you get that? And they'd say, well, it wasn't, it wasn't Hammurabi. You know, it was God. Say, oh, your God seems pretty wise compared to uh, you know all of our deities and all of our legislature legislators. You know, your, your laws are really humane. Your laws are really pretty advanced. Your laws are pretty awesome. How do we get to know your God? That was Israel's whole job: obey the law, so the other nations will notice how good God's law is in comparison to theirs. But they didn't pay attention. They didn't pay attention to His law, which was great. And glorious, and that's, that's like us, perhaps, not, not paying attention to, the, to God's Word. And God has given us His Word. It's great and glorious. And, and we live in the area of fulfillment, where the Messiah has come. But this is a people, this is a people trapped and hidden away, no one to rescue them. Why? Because they're not paying attention to the Word of God. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames that they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Now this is really discouraging. This is really depressing, actually. God has done so much for His people, including giving them His law. And they're basically back in slavery again, in darkness and night, 
plundered in pits, consumed by war and not understanding. And you say, oh, we started out so well with this servant of the Lord who was going to bring justice to the nations. He was filled by the Spirit. God chose him. God delighted in him. He was going to open the eyes of the blind. But Israel is blind, and now Israel is in prison. But, he, but the servant was going to release the captives, but now the servant is the one who's blind. The servant's the one who's in prison. The servant's the one who's in darkness. And, and so this ark, it was, it was so good, and, and then it crested, and now we're down the bottom and we're back in slavery again. This this is not the message I was hoping for. And that's the problem with our chapter and verse divisions and with our Western attention spans. Because as tired as I am, and maybe because I am tired, I want to say, but you're actually supposed to just do the next 12 chapters. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to stop now because this isn't the end of the message. This is just one segment of the message. In fact, the very next words are, but now. In other words, that's not the end. There's more to say. This isn't the last word. Yes, Israel, Israel, you're, you're, not, you're disobedient. Yes, you're blind. Yes, you're deaf. Yes, you're in darkness. Yes, you're back in slavery. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who you formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. And, 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 you know, well, now that we've started the chapter, you can't hardly stop, can you? you know, but you just keep going. It, it, it just, just let it unfold, let it unfold. Yes, here's your ark in chapter 42. It's here, and then it's here. But chapter 42, verse 25, isn't the last word of the book. It's not where the narrative arc ends. And then you're back soaring in chapter 43. Why? Because... No matter how sinful the, the people are, there are people that God is redeeming. And because of that, they have a new song to sing. Oh, he's our redeemer. And at the end, the servant, the servant, the ideal servant, he's going to look at that blind and pitiful servant. And he's going to buy it. He's going to buy that blind servant. He's going to heal that blind servant's eyes. He's going to see that blind servant in shackles and dungeons and darkness. And he's going to purchase that servant out of slavery to belong to himself. And you know what he's going to pay for that servant? It's not silver or gold. It's his own substitutionary blood in chapter 53. He will redeem the servant by dying for him. And that's how there will be life. That's how there will be freedom. That's how there will be covenant blessing. There will be covenant blessing because the Messiah, the ideal servant, will do what the other servant failed to do, and then he will buy him. He'll buy him through his own death. He'll die in his place. And all that suffering which fallen people deserve, he will take upon himself. He will be treated according to their sin so that they can be treated according to his righteousness. That's what the servant, the servant, will do for the servant. It's an amazing thing. 
He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear. I have redeemed you. Lord willing, we'll look at that text next week. But you can't not say just a little bit about it today. So, Father, we pray that you will help us to uh, be mindful of what you have done for us. Help us to see it. Uh, Help us not to close our eyes to it. Uh, Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Lord, help us to see the glory of your word and the glory of your servant, our Messiah and our Redeemer, and help us to follow him. Help us to be faithful to him as he is more than faithful to us. We commit ourselves to you. Uh, Watch over us this week with all the events that uh, this week will bring. In Jesus' name, amen.